0: Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet, a weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common, agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery, and that is why the Machinery Digest exists, a no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax, and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. hello my friends and thank you so much for listening to idle chatter ray bohacks As the intro said the hot rod farmer from the farm machinery digest and we're coming to you as always from cat swamp road in warren county new jersey cloudy overcast and let me look at the temperature 42 degree warren county so uh i'm gonna do my best to give you a uh, an interesting show and we're gonna talk today about carburetors and as much as things change on the farm, right, there's some things that stay the same, like dealing with the weather, dealing with pests, dealing with the markets, dealing with everything else, equipment breaking down, and uh, carburetors. I mean, even if you have a uh, the most modern operation with the electronically fuel-injected gasoline engines, direct injection, and we... Uh, or diesel, uh, what they call common rail diesel systems, tier four emissions, there is still carbureted engines floating around on the farm, and there always will be. So whether it's a carburetor that's on an old engine, an old grain truck, or an old irrigation pump, or a welder, or a compressor, or it is a, uh, a newer piece of equipment, a seed tender engine, or a lawnmower, or a zero turn mower, or what have you, there's always gonna be the carburetor, not forgetting about small engines with carburetors like chainsaws, weed whackers, leaf blowers and 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 everything else that goes along with that. So I felt that it would be a good topic for us to discuss today on the show because to me, I love well first of all, I love carburetors. I've always loved carburetors and I think that they are the essence of getting an engine to run properly. And I used to pride myself on fine tuning all the carburetors I ever dealt with. And uh, matter of fact, as a young man, when I was going to college, I worked in a Buick dealer out in Long Island, New York. So if you sense a little bit of a uh, of an East Coast accent, it's a combination of New Jersey and for going to school out in Long Island. But anyway, um, it's uh, I used to work in a Buick dealer, and it was called Reese Buick. And for some reason, I remember the address it was Four Ten Jericho Turnpike in Mineola, Long Island. And I'm sure 99.9 percent of the people that are listening to this show today have no idea where Mineola, Long Island, is, nor do they care. Actually, it was a or it is, and that was it still exists, thank God. It's a uh, it's a suburb of New York City, but it's out in Nassau County, uh, so it's it's not physically part of New York City, but as in so many parts of the country, Nassau County, and then further out on the tip of Long Island, which was Suffolk County, that used to be all farms and then, as the city grew out of the uh, out of its limits into the suburbs, it became uh basically what we'd call on the East Coast a bedroom community where people used to go there to sleep and go there to live, but they used to work in New York City or closer to New York City. But that was Reese Buick, and I used to end up, I was a, uh, a young guy, wet behind the ears, but I used to do all of the carburetor um, service there, and that was with the feedback carburetors, the electronic carburetors that GM had in the early 1980s to the late 1980s, and then uh, it also morphed into uh, doing all their fuel injection uh, work. And what we would call check engine lights, or they used to call it computer work back then, right? Because it was a computer controlled engine. So they used to call it computer work. I think the term computer work has something different to uh to deal to do mean today than working on a electronic carburetor. But anyway, I used to pride myself on getting those carburetors to run perfectly and I actually, you know, put myself through college doing a lot of side work and backyard work and uh having people come to me and, and to be the tune-up man. So I guess before I was the hot rod farmer, I was the tune-up man. But uh, I always took, as a matter of fact, one of my first books was about carburetors. but well, not one of my first. My first book I had written was about carburetors, and it was about demon carburetors. They were a competitor to Holly from down in Georgia. And that's actually how I met Vic and Susan Moore. And they're from Moore Good Inc., And Sue is the one who does my website or created my website, FarmMachineryDigest.com. And she's also working on a new website for uh, Ripsaw Records. And Ripsaw Records is the ones that, um, the label that Tex Rubinowitz, the Hot Rod Man, that I use his um, music, about 21 seconds of his song, Hot Rod Man, as the lead into the toolbox test each week. And Sue was working on a new website for uh, for Ripsaw because they are the cutting edge of rock and roll and their website uh, needed, needs to be updated. But anyway, that's how I met Vic and Sue Moore as they worked for uh, Demon Carburetor and they also had a um, Demon at the time which was owned by Barry Grant, which is now defunct. They were in Dahlonega, Georgia. So they were up in the hills north of Atlanta and I think that there was a... An original gold mine in Delanaga, so uh a little bit of history there but that's how i met them and then i was at a show called the pri show which is performance racing industries and uh i physically met victor and sue Moore there for the first time we dealt over the telephone and what had happened was that i was doing a nitrous story nitrous oxide story for hot rod magazine roe mcgoniga was the editor back then and I asked him. It was typical protocol when you worked uh, with an editor to ask them if there are any specific companies that they that you want that he wanted you to represent as far as photography in the story. And there was a big company called Nitrous Works. I mean, that, excuse me, NOS. And then there was a startup company which was part of the Demon Carburetor line, Barry Grant's company, and it was called Nitrous Works. So I, he says, work with those too. So I called up. Uh, NOS nitrous oxide systems to get some photography for the article and uh, I also called up uh, Barry Grant's company demon carburetors for nitrous works and that's when I first spoke to Victor Moore over the telephone and I told him I needed some photography and some information for this article for Hot Rod magazine well I think that was in 1999 maybe 2000 I think it was 1999 but anyway or arguably, let's say, 2003's arithmetic. I'm still waiting to hear back from nitrous oxide systems. And Vic Moore from uh, was Johnny on the spot and got me great photography. And, uh, and we actually used his photography in a story. And then subsequently, about six months later, I physically met them at the PRI show, as I was saying, which is Performance Racing Industries. That's actually the Hot Rod Industries version of something like Commodity Classic. It's not a huge, huge show. It's, I mean, 10 times bigger than Commodity Classic. But uh, but it's a, if it doesn't have anything to do with making the car faster, the engine, the brakes, the suspension, if it's not functional, it is not at PRI show. Whereas a show called SEMA, uh, Specialty Equipment Marketers Association, has a lot of glitz and visual things for cars. But the, commo- uh, the Commodity Classic, the PRI show did not. And then... I physically was able to meet Vic and Sue at the, uh, at the trade show there, and then they, uh, Sue came up to me and asked me if whether, I ever re- whether I was interested in ever writing a book, and I thought that she meant a novel. So I said, well, maybe one day, but really not. And what she meant is to write a book about carburetors, the demon carburetors. So in essence, that's how it all came together is my first book, which is still being published and printed. And I think it's also available as an ebook. It's about demon carburetors. And I really liked, I really enjoyed doing that because, as I said, I was always a carburetor man because I think that the carburetor on any engine is like the conductor... It's not a one-to-one association, but it's a lot like the conductor of an orchestra. The conductor of an orchestra, which believe me, I am not, uh, brings all the instruments together. So it's not noise, but it makes beautiful music, whatever genre of music that you like. And then the carburetor brings all the elements of the engine together to make it run properly and perform properly and you could have a beautifully built engine and if the carburetor is misadjusted or not correct then that engine is not going to the way it runs is not going to represent the beauty of its internal engineering and also could offer the user the end user a lot of frustration So I always felt that uh, since I can't play any instruments right I might as well try to be the conductor and I would pride myself as I said a number of times already that I would uh, bring this all together and the more adjustability a carburetor had the more that I liked it because adjustability is a wonderful thing it allows you to fine tune and bring things together. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, is we're talking about carburetors. And uh, I could actually do three or four shows on carburetors, but we're not going to belabor that. And uh, what I will do is give you some idea of how a carburetor works, and then you would need to apply those ideas to the carburetor-specific uh the specific carburetor at hand, but I also want to give you some basic diagnostic procedures and also some basic adjustment procedures because most of the time you will find that a carburetor, if it's clean and adjusted properly, will be a great, great, great part of the engine. And all, But it also will be a nightmare if it's just off a little bit. So that is what we're going to discuss. And then we're also going to have our toolbox test question later on. And we're going now into test number two. So we went through test number one. And keep in mind that those tests are on the website machinery digestcom and that they are all there and they're multiple choice so I'm actually going to be starting on test number two today and it's going to be question number one from test number two and then as far as the special delivery segment which is concerned uh, I am going to uh, follow up on a letter that I basically told you a little bit about last week from a gentleman up in Canada from Ontario and he has a older Ford power stroke diesel that he's having problems getting started uh so we're going to go over that and uh, subsequently I did communicate with him between last week and this week and thankfully he has it going and it's all fixed so I'm going to do is share that information with you and because I think that's a great learning tool and somebody else's problems right once they get fixed are a great learning tool and you know as I started to say last week I think I'm going to try to make this a a A weekly mantra in the show because I feel that it's so important and it's so uh, necessary for you, as my listeners, to be able to, to, I don't want to say drill it into your mind, but to modify your thought process a little bit. And, you know, most times in life, things are just a thought process. It's really not. Much more than that, but but recognizing something and seeing it and and then then responding to it, not just throwing your shoulders up and saying, "Oh yeah, I see that, I see the nail in the tire," but I uh, don't, I don't think that's where the flat, where the air is coming out. So uh, to be ridiculous. But two things I do want to say to you, and it probably end up being three, right, as my mind goes on instead of two. Is the first thing is that you know, on any business, it's not what you make, it's what you keep and i really don't see that mindset as prevalent in agriculture and i'm sorry but you know i tough love you guys that i'm not going to tell you what you want to hear and i tough love you and i see that uh, you know people are focused and you're focused on on everything but that and and it's they focus on crop prices they focus on yield and like i say you know success on the farm or the ranch is a three-legged stool it's basically it's agronomy it's marketing and it's also your equipment and i just really want you to remember that and think that and most of the times when you have not all the times but most of the time when you have a premature failure in the shop with a piece of equipment and that could either cost you a lot of money to fix or cost you very little money to fix but it could also cost you or probably will cost you downtime. And as we all know, that agriculture is very, very sensitive, is a time-sensitive business, and farming is a time-sensitive business. So if we have something, it could be a $10 part, but if it sidelines a piece of equipment that you can't get in the field because of that, then uh, that's, really, that's really an issue. So how many times a few-dollar part, or let's say even a $100 part, has cost you a lot of yield? and? You know, I really need to, you know, I'm going to drill that into you, because I honestly don't see that mindset being where it should be when I talk to people in the agricultural community. So that's the one thing, and you know, the other thing that I that I wanted to say to you, which I started to introduce last week, is that... This show, as you know, as you're listening to it, is an educational show. I tried to do my best to make it entertaining, to have, to have education with an entertaining component to it so it's just not drab and just you know, a bunch of equations or what have you, like a physics class in high school or college. But the uh, the thing is that I ask you, and I, I'm going to give you some homework, right? The hope is that each show, each week's show, take an element from the show or the basic overview of the show, and then go and then take that, what you've learned from this, and explain it succinctly and concisely to somebody else. And that is going to be the best way for you to learn that's going to cement it in your mind like you would not believe and that has to do with everything it doesn't have to just do with my show and i've said this before but i'm afraid that people are not doing that and i do want i want you to to learn and use and if you learn this then you will apply it it'll become intuitive for you to apply whatever you've learned in the show when you have a problem You don't even have a problem in the farm shop, but but you're maintaining a piece of equipment, you're thinking about a piece of equipment, you're looking to purchase a piece of equipment, what what have you. So it's imperative that you do that. So your homework today is going to be to, in the next week, to explain to as many people as you can the basic function of a carburetor. And you don't have to go on for an hour. Even if you choose one or two or three different key elements, from it uh, from the talk today and explain that to someone and you will see how that will make such a big difference in your understanding and it'll be your go-to thing when you do have a problem it'll be the trigger mechanism to 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 think back at this show or think back of and you'll do the same thing you read something in a magazine you read something in a book you watch something educational on a TV show. All right, the thing is that you watch a YouTube video. Then do the same thing, take that and explain it, and uh, I'm gonna beat you to death with it uh, moving forward because I want you to do that, and I don't want you to have a laissez-faire attitude because if you have a laissez-faire attitude about your equipment, I have never, ever seen a farm that was as successful as it should be. Now, that's not meaning that it was not successful, but as successful at it, as it should be without efficiency as far as their equipment is concerned, with a minimal amount of breakdown, a minimum amount of failure, and as, as efficient operation as as possible. So I've never seen it because you could say, well, the, the, you know, my neighbor down the road is very successful. Yeah, he's maybe very successful in yield and in marketing, but how? But he's losing a lot of his success if he's not applying that same mindset to his equipment and uh, all the things that are going on with it. So, all right. So, be forewarned. You are going to be drilled. This is going to be drilled into your mind. All righty. So now it's time for us to finally. Nineteen minutes into the show, right? Like a pastor, a preacher in church is you know twenty minutes into the service and he doesn't even get to the topic yet. But anyway. But just know that. It's it's done through 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 a uh, a heart that wants you to learn and be be successful, and there's no agenda other than that than the success of the farm, the American farmer and rancher, and also those that are listening to the show from around the world. I want them to be successful also, no matter where they are farming. So um, so just always remember that I'm a marine drill sergeant i'm going to be tough on you because i want you to come back from the battle and i want you to come back from the battle unscarred i want you to be victorious so all right let's talk about carburetors but any discussion that has to do with carburetors needs to needs to begin with gasoline and because what does the carburetor do is that it, it 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 ministers or feeds gasoline to the engine so that's a very simplistic approach Let's talk about some three things that need to happen to gasoline before it becomes a suitable fuel for any engine. And I don't care whether it's a one-cylinder weed whacker or it's a uh, V12 uh, old GMC. In the 60s, they had the big V12 engines, and a lot of them were floating around in, uh, in over-the-road trucks, and they were gasoline. They had multiple carburetors. They were kind of cool. They were two uh, sick V6s put together. But uh, well, anyway so what we're talking about here is going to apply to any carbureted and gasoline engine so the three things that need to happen to gasoline just like the three things that need to happen on a farm right to be successful the three things that need to happen to gasoline for it to become a suitable fuel for combustion is that it needs to be atomized it needs to be emulsified and it needs to be vaporized and so many times i see people they don't talk about they don't talk about emulsification much but so many people seem to get atomization and vaporization uh, confused and use those terms incorrectly they are they are separate terms and they're separate things that happen to gasoline so what does atomized mean well you pump liquid fuel into the tank of an engine gas tank of an engine fuel tank what have you but the liquid fuel does not burn so atomization means that you're taking this liquid fuel and you're breaking it down into small particles. So if you think of a spray can, or whatever it's, whether it's hairspray, I don't know if anybody use hairspray anymore, any women, but hairspray or a can of carburetor cleaner or even a can of Lysol or something, when they fill that can, that aerosol can, it's actually a liquid. You could take that can and you could shake it and you could feel the liquid and hear the liquid moving around. But when it comes out... It's in what's called an atomized form. So it's still liquid. So if you were to take the can of Lysol and you were to spray, let's say, the sink with it, right, it comes out and the sink gets wet. So what atomization is, is that it's a liquid and it's broken into very, very fine particles. And what we do is we talk about atomization to a certain extent when we are dealing with sprayer tips on a agricultural sprayer, Right. And we say we want big droplets. We want small droplets. So what we're doing is we're defining the—I don't want to say the rate of atomization because that's prop—that's not proper—but we're de- de- defining the the effectiveness or the end result of the atomization. So if you wanted something, if you're spraying and you want a large droplet, so let's say you're spraying for with a large droplet because you don't want a lot of drift, then what's going to happen is that that. That pintle, or the tip design, I won't use, I'm using a fuel injection term, pintle, because I, I think engines, all right? So I think you probably know that by now. Uh, but the tip design of that sprayer is going to, they'll, they'll say it's a coarse, a coarse droplet, it's a fine droplet, what have you. So that is the, is the, I'll use the word, the rate of atomization or the size of the droplet. So gasoline needs to be atomized, which means that it is broken into fine or small particles and it's going to be atomized to a greater extent than a spray sprayer tip would be on a field sprayer but that is still atomization so now the next thing that needs to happen with gasoline is that it needs to be atomized which is a liquid in fine small particles and then it needs to be emulsified and in in the term emulsification when when we're talking about carburetors means that it needs to be mixed with air so it so we have these fine particles that are still in liquid form and they need to be mixed with air so there's going to be air and liquid together because what is an engine run on an air fuel ratio so we need to have the fine particles atomized emulsified mixed with air and those two components, those two, not components, those two things that stages that happen to gasoline happen inside the carburetor. So the carburetor's main job is to atomize the fuel and it needs, and, and its other job is, and if they're 50-50, they're just as important, it needs to emulsify the, sh- the fuel and it needs to take those smaller particles and mix it with air. And then the third thing that happens to fuel before it's before it's a gasoline before it's a suitable fuel for combustion, it needs to be vaporized. And this is where people get atomization and vaporization confused. Vaporization means that it changes phase, p h a s e changes phase, and it changes from a liquid form to a rarefied. Or what we would call a gaseous state it has nothing to do with gasoline. That's why I, I often refrain from using the word gaseous state in, unless I'm doing, let's say, a presentation where I could have have a PowerPoint or something up on the board where I could uh, show that. But it's a gaseous state, so it's rarefied. So what happens is that it has to phase change from a liquid to a gas, not gasoline. A gaseous state, rarefied a rarefied form so if you look at it now and we're going to back up so the carburetor it takes the liquid fuel it breaks it into small particles and then it mixes it with air and now it needs to undergo a phase change now the job of the carburetor is only to mix the break up the fuel atomize it and it needs to emulsify it it is not responsible for the phase change and the phase change is is going to be controlled by the latent heat of vaporization. I'm going to have to clear my throat. Hello, I'm back. I had a uh, my uh, sinuses, as I've always tell you, and I feel badly about it because I'm uh, always apologizing for it. But uh, I got a coughing jag, and this button, as I said before, is not as efficient as I'd like it to be, as far as the pause button, so I uh, I apologize for the break in continuity of my lecture here today, and I will try to do my best not to have my throat give up on me again, so, uh, but, alrighty, I'm going to stop this again for a second, I'm sorry about this, hello, it's alright, I'm back now, hopefully my throat is right, I apologize for that, and, uh, but anyway... So to get back to it is that the phase change occurs through what is called the latent heat of vaporization. And for gasoline to phase change, it needs heat. And the actual phase change of the gasoline consumes the heat that is in the intake manifold. And that is why a carburetor needs a very rich mixture when the engine is cold. That's one of the main reasons why a carburetor has a choke is because at 60 degrees fahrenheit the phase change of gasoline is only 50% effective so 50% of the fuel is not phase changing and then as the engine starts to run and build heat and the temperature comes up in the intake manifold and in the cylinder head itself then the phase change you know the phase change efficacy improves greatly so the latent heat of vaporization Is what takes the phase, or what creates the phase change of the fuel, not the carburetor. It's the carburetor's job to break the fuel into small particles mixed with air, so there will be an efficient phase change. And and the phase change needs to happen for it to run, for an engine to run. Otherwise, the fuel itself is not going to ignite. So, using that as our background is that the carburetor the carburetor if it doesn't do a good job because it's not adjusted properly doesn't do a good job of atomizing the fuel and emulsifying it mixing with air then the phase change will be very inefficient also and the engine will run very poorly or may not even run so that's the foundation of all carburetors and i don't care whether it's a carburetor on, a, on an engine or if it's a carburetor on a weed whacker so they all basically function the same there's other elements of each carburetor that we have to discuss briefly for instance a lot of small engines let's say like on a chainsaw or a, a, a weed whacker or a leaf blower they do not have a float ball in the carburetor what they do is they use the fuel tank as a float pole and they have a line that goes from the venturi in the carburetor a low pressure area to suck to draw fuel and some some of those carburetors are called vacuum jet carburetors but they still function on the same thing it's the carburetor's job being to to atomize and emulsify the fuel all right so now that you have a basic understanding of how carburetors work we will continue on The thing is that what you need to do is that when you're approaching any carburetor and you're even doing any maintenance on an engine, what you need to realize is that cleanliness is next to godliness when it comes to carburetors, is that the carburetor needs to be kept clean. There's a magazine that I write for called Heming's Muscle Machines, And it was a pet peeve of mine because they would photograph these beautifully restored muscle cars, and the carburetor would be filthy dirty. I mean, it wouldn't be filthy dirty. It wouldn't be filthy dirty on the outside being grimy, but it would be filthy dirty from the residual, the fumes of the gasoline turning to varnish and attracting dirt in the throttle bore, around the choke plate, around the air bleeds. Now, if you look inside any carburetor, you're going to have a jet. And, and it, could be, it could be multiple jets or it could be one jet. And the jet is actually what is going to administer the amount of fuel that engine needs to run. And the jet is based upon an orifice, a dimensional size that is uh, drilled into, that in, into it. So the, the size of the orifice, the passage in the jet is going to determine how much fuel flows. And then if you look up around any carburetor, someplace around what we call the air horn or near there, and sometimes it's a little bit into the actual throat of the carburetor. There's little pinholes there. And those little pinholes, and like I said, makes a difference what kind of carburetor is or what's called air bleeds now what happens is the jet determines the maximum amount of fuel that the engine will be getting all right so it's basically like you know going back to a sprayer on a field it's really not that much different you say okay this is 30 gallons per this is 30 gallons per acre at 45 pounds this is 20 gallons per acre at 45 pounds or whatever the pounds pressure you may be running so that is the jet the jet is going to determine the amount of fuel that is going to be supplied whereas the air bleed is going to introduce the air into that fuel as far as the emulsification is concerned and it is going to shape the fuel curve. So what happens is that you're not looking to design a carburetor, you're looking to maintain a carburetor and to get it to work properly. And the biggest problem with carburetors is is that the the throat of the carburetor down into what we would call the air horn and the throttle body of the carburetor gets varnished up and dirty and the air bleeds which are very very small the air bleeds get varnished up they may not get plugged but they get varnished up enough that they're in thousands of an inch increment sizes that the orifice in the air bleed does not now flow enough air and the emulsification process in the carburetor skews and also the shaping of the fuel curve skews and what i mean by the shaping of the fuel curve is that in most engines the air fuel ratio is not linear is that you may idle at 14.7 to 1 and, it, and and under acceleration may be down to 11 to 1 and then a wide open throttler may be to Twelve to one, and then at closed throttle, coast down it may maybe sixteen to one. So it's not linear; all it's not the same all over. It's depending upon the operating state. So one of the biggest things that you could do to help your carburetor is to invest a couple of dollars in a can of carburetor spray. And I don't care what brand it is; they all seem to be as effective as as the other. Right, carburetor spray, and then spray the carburetor. The inside of the carburetor meaning down the throat the venturi of the carburetor identify where the air bleeds are on that carburetor and you'll see the little holes if you look in there and sometimes they have little they're actually little pressed in pressed in or drilled holes and keep the carburetor clean so you so a, a clean carburetor is like a clean weed free field it's gonna yield the most so the most important thing that you need to do is clean the carburetor right you gonna clean the outside of the carburetor you're going to clean the inside of the carburetor and the inside meaning down the throat right and then you're going to maintain that the next thing that you want to do is you want to make sure that that carburetor is snug that all the fasteners are tight that holds it together now a carburetor is is always a multi-piece carburetor it could be a one-piece carburetor two-piece carburetor three-piece four-piece what have you is that you wanna make sure these fasteners are snug because you don't want any leakage. And, and it could be either fuel leakage or air leakage into a circuit which is gonna undermine its operation. So you wanna keep the carburetor snug. And lots of times what you'll do if you have a three-piece carburetor, what you'll do is when it's on the engine, you'll take, it, you'll take your hands and try to move it around and you'll find that the screws on the bottom that hold what's called the throttle body where the throttle plates are, to the to the um to the float ball area or the main body area the top of the carburetor is historically called an air horn then you have either the main body or the or the or the float ball area depending upon what the manufacturer called it and then at the bottom is the throttle plate so if you have a three-piece carburetor for instance like an old rochester quadrajet it was very common for those bottom screws to loosen up and if you would take the carburetor and grab it and you'd wiggle it around you'd see that that the air horn and the float ball would be moving around and then the throttle body would be loose So it's not loose to the intake manifold, it's loose to the other parts. So you wanna do that, and you may have to take the carburetor off to tighten those bolts. If it's a three piece, you will have to take the carburetor off, alrighty? So you wanna make sure that the carburetor is clean, that the carburetor is tight, and you wanna make sure that the carburetor is tight to the intake manifold, and you also wanna make sure that the intake manifold bolts that you could get to are snug. Now we're gonna stick with the carburetor. So you clean it all over. You want to clean the linkage. You want to clean the choke linkage. You want to clean the the, the butterfly. You want to clean uh, down in the down in the in the uh, in the throttle bores. You want to spray it up good. Now, if it's a carbureted, you've neglected and uh, neglected up into this particular point, and really didn't do a good job of cleaning it. You probably do want to pull that carburetor off so that you could clean up from the bottom the throttle the throttle plates from the bottom into the venturi but once you clean it well that way if you maintain it and keep spraying it every once in a while every you know one, depending upon the use of the engine every time you change the oil do something take the air cleaner off and spray the carburetor this you might know, do this on my lawn tractor I do this on my weed whacker on my chainsaw it makes no difference you always want to try to spray that carburetor and keep not try you want to spray the carburetor and keep it clean now the next thing that you 're going to do is what I want you to do is now identify where the mixture screws are so we have a clean carburetor and we're making sure that all the fasteners are tight then and they need to be snug you 're not going to moose them because the carburetor specifically if it has a a, a a side hung float ball which is a la like a holly type of carburetor, but I don't want to, uh, yeah, there's a lot of carburetors that you'll find that have side-hung float balls that are not hollies, and you may find them on an old farm tractor or what have you. But if the float ball is, is, is hung from the side, then what's going to happen is that you don't want to warp that float ball because it'll leak very easily. So you want to make sure all of the all of the bolts are snug. And if you see any signs of varnish around a float ball, then you know that that float ball is leaking and that either that gasket is corrupted or somebody moosed those bolts and warped that float ball which is which is a problem and the same token is that you could warp the air horn by over tightening the uh over tightening the screws on the air horn to the main body or the float ball like I said, whatever you want to call it and depending upon the design i'm just repeating that And then, if you have a float ball, I mean, an air horn that is warped slightly, oftentimes the choke plate will bind, and that carburetor will be a bear to start cold because it needs to choke to increase the amount of fuel for the because of the poor vaporization rate, or the choke may close fine but not want to open up, and then it's it's causing a uh, it's causing a, a a very rich. Uh, fuel condition with the engine warm as a matter of fact i sadly had that happen back in 2017 i bought a new john deal uh lawn tractor for the farm over here with a briggs and stratton engine on a nice you know great little machine and i you would know, start up fine i went to go Cut the grass with it for the first time, and I opened up the throttle, and the thing is chugging and blowing black smoke, and doesn't want to run. And it says, "What the heck is going on here?" You know, brand new. And then I closed the throttle, and it would idle okay, but it didn't idle great. It would idle okay, and then what happened? I looked at it, is that I had to, I guess, when they built the carburetor, I, uh, they, there must have been just enough tolerance in the air horn when they fastened it. Uh, to the flow ball that it was tweaked a little bit and the choke plate was binding so when I pulled the choke to start it the choke would open the choke would close but when I pushed it open it wouldn't open all the way even though the cable appeared like it was uh, opening all the way from the dashboard of the tractor so all I had to end up doing was loosening up the uh, the screws for the flow ball slightly which wasn't too bad to do thank God I tweaked it i'm talking maybe a millimeter if even that it just settled into the gasket better and i stuck them back up and it's been fine since 2017 so keep that in mind you don't want to warp that all right so clean tight and then the next thing i want you to address is the mixture screws now the mixture screw is going to be used they're called idle mixture screws and what you have to understand about a carburetor it's a building block approach what it does is it it adds circuits upon it so the idle circuit even though it has the most authority at idle as you start to tip into the throttle and as you start to put some as you start to put some load and some rpm into this engine is that the idle circuit does not become fully negated it's a stair step it's a building block approach as far as fueling the engine is concerned so for an engine to have proper throttle response and proper performance it needs to have a properly adjusted idle circuit and if it doesn't have a properly properly adjusted idle circuit then what's going to happen is that you will have the foundation will not be there and it will not only idle poorly and depends on how critical you are of your idle quality as i said i'm a stickler for idle quality but you will not have what they call proper tip-in responses you start to open the throttle a little bit more and then, and then again you know, if you look at a lot of small carburetors like on a chainsaw they don't have an intermediate circuit they don't have a true main metering circuit they have an idle circuit and they have a high speed circuit and there's a mixture screw adjustment for both of those and most of the time they have what they call limiter caps on them where they have a plastic cap with a tang on it that you can only turn it so far and that is supposedly for emissions but i don't know if we'll get into that today but what have you is that date that's why usually they'll bog a little bit when you give it the throttle because they don't have a transitional circuit a main metering circuit into a power enrichment circuit which is a automotive style carburetor that you would find on a on a a, a car truck or an automotive type of application even if it's a car engine a car or a truck engine on an irrigation pump it'll have more circuits to the carburetor than a chainsaw or a weed whacker would where they usually have just a low speed and high speed circuit but it's imperative that you have the idle mixture adjusted properly and we're going to go into that right now very very simple so we have a clean and tight carburetor the next thing that i want you to do is with the engine off I want you to take the mixture screws, and it's usually, if it's more than a single cylinder engine, there's usually going to be two mixture screws. And I want you to gently seat them, and I want you to count the number of turns. So you gently seat them. You don't want to moose them because it's it's going to be a needle against the seat. You don't want to warp it. So you gently seat them, you count the turns. So let's say arguably it's two and three quarter turns to seat it from where the screw is. And that's only going to get you back to the point where you were so that you knew that the engine ran. That's it. We're not going to go back there and stay there. We're going to just see to get you back to where you were. So you, now you're going to take the mixture screw, gently seat it. And now what I want you to do is take the mixture screw out. Now remember, there's going to be a spring on there, and the spring is on the mixture screw to to hold it. With tension, so it doesn't change from a vibration. Now, some springs, some mixer screws have a little tang that holds the spring on that doesn't let it fall off. Most of them do not. So, you want to be very careful when you pull that, unthread that mixture screw to hold the spring with your fingers so you do not lose it. And what you're going to do is you're going to take that mixer screw out with the spring. When you pull it out, hold it up so the spring doesn't fall off. All right. And I want you to take your spray carburetor cleaner and I want you to spray into that mixture screw passage. Even, and you're gonna look down the throttle bore of the carburetor and you're gonna see the carburetor cleaner coming out. Even though you sprayed the carburetor cleaner, it's very possible that you have some varnish built up within that mixture screw passage, which is going to affect the way that that fuel is atomized and then emulsified and then bringing it home again with the phase change for it to run properly. So you're gonna spray into that passage until you see, you know, sh- 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 until you see a nice clear spray coming out. All right, you look down into the carburetor and see that now. Okay, whether it's a, on a lawn on a on a lawnmower or on a big engine, you do the same thing. And then I want you to spray the car, the mixture screw itself and clean it. and I want you to to examine it both visually and tactily, i want you to take your finger and run your finger across it if it looks kind of dirty or not shiny or, or corroded i want you to take a very 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 fine and i like to keep an old piece of worn out green scotch bright for this the green scotch bright a piece of scotch bright that's seen its better days you don't want to you don't want to you don't want to take any material off that mixture screw or you don't want to also gouge it and you're going to take that scotch bright or a very 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 fine polishing cloth and you're going to polish that mixture screw and you're going to spray it again and clean it off then you're going to install it you're going to seed it then you're going to bring it back to whatever it was two and three quarters turns more or less and then you're going to repeat that on the other side Right? you're going to repeat that on the other side and then what will happen is that you will now have a clean passage for that mixture screw That mixture screw to administer the fuel and the screw and the the actual needle of the mixture screw will be clean and it will be polished. And you're going to do that to both sides. And now, what you're going to do is you're going to start the engine. It's going to be a little bit bulky to start because there's carburetor cleaner in it in the passages. You're going to rev it up a little bit. You're going to let it idle. And depending upon the application, what you're going to do if possible if it's a larger engine you could hook up a tachometer to it then that'll be great there's also very there's, you know this tax you could buy a little clip-on tacks for one cylinder engines which work great they're not expensive already but if you don't have a tack available what you're going to do is you're going to let the engine idle and you're going to adjust the idle speed so it's where it should be because as you have to, the idle speed too high you're going to take authority away from those mixture screws so if those mixture screws don't change the mixture it could be not only because the passages are dirty is because the idle speed is too high and you're starting to steal authority away from the carburetor's transitioning from the idle circuit into the main metering circuit and the thing is that you're very gently and very, very precisely, you're going to turn the mix, one mixture screw in an eighth of a turn. And you're going to give it a chance to stabilize, and you're going to wait. And what you're going to do is you want to qualify when the idle speed either starts to drop off or the idle quality starts to degrade. When you turn the mixer screw in on 99% of the carburetors, you're leaning the mixture out. When you turn the mixer screw out counterclockwise you're riching it giving it more fuel All right so you want to bring it in until you see the rpm feel either audibly hear the rpm drop or if you're watching attack and then you stop and now you're going to take it and you're going to turn it out an eighth of a turn increments until you reach the highest rpm or the smoothest idle quality if the rp if you had it really screwed up then you're going to have to now the rpm will be higher the idle speed will be higher than you want you're gonna to have to close the throttle plate back again and start all over again so you, what you want to do is you're going to turn it in till the rpm degrades and the idle quality degrades and you're going to back it out slowly slowly one mixer screw at a time it's only until you get to the highest rpm and the smoothest idle quality and then what you're going to do is you can just to check it to confirm your work you're going to turn it in this eighth of a turn you're going to see a slight drop in rpm a slight degradation idle quality. you're going to come back out and you're going to leave it and it's going to be done and then you're going to go to the other mixer screw and do the same thing so what you want to achieve is the highest rpm with the smoothest idle with the mixer screw and that will get you the the proper air fuel ratio for that application. So the it's going to talk to you. What I mean by talk is like a dog wagging its tail or a cat purring. When you have the highest RPM and the smoothest idle from the mixture screw, you have it set perfectly and you're going to go and do that to the other side. And the thing basically is the same thing is going to happen with this small carburetor, if you're adjusting the low speed and then you're adjusting the high speed, let's say on a chainsaw, you'll have the throttle wide open. Throttle will be different than on a, on a, a pickup truck engine. Throttle wide open, and what you'll do is that you'll turn the mixture screw in until the RPM starts to degrade and the and the exhaust sounds sounds farty, and then you will turn it back out and you hear it sort of go, and you went too far too rich, and then you will bring it back until you get that sweet spot. And that is, in essence, how you adjust any carburetor. On a larger engine, I like to use a tune-up style tachometer so that I could see the RPM in 20 RPM increments. So that's an old tach and dwell meter. But if you don't have that, and if you have a good ear, and if you're patient, you could get it very, very close. I hate to use the word close enough for government work, but you get it 99% that way. And that's what you would do to every carburetor. Now keep in mind also, which we did not discuss this, is that the uh, the float level inside a carburetor is paramount to how all the circuits work. We're, it's, we're just talking about cleaning a carburetor and making an idle mixture adjustment, but the float level, if the float level is too low, then what's going to happen is that the throttle is going to need to be opened up more for it to start to pull fuel into the main metering circuit you could have the float level too low but it's not it could idle beautifully but it'll give you a sag or a bog as you start to open the throttle or what ford called crowd the throttle and then if the float level is too high it could either dump fuel and you could lose authority from the mixture screws or you can also pull over into the main metering circuit too soon so so let's say if the engine idles at 600 rpm where it's not supposed to start to pull over into the main metering circuit to about 900 rpm as soon as you open the throttle a little bit starts to pull fuel and it dumps fuel and the engine runs too rich so the float level i'll do a show on float level maybe in a couple of weeks because it is important but what i wanted to touch on today was just the idea is that Probably from my experience, 95% of the carburetors, whether it's a hard starting issue, a lack of power, an idle issue, what have you, are because of cleanliness or a lack of cleanliness. There a lack of the fasteners being tight and the idle mixture screws misadjusted. So over the my years of, over thirty years of working on carburetors, many people, many carburetors I've worked on, people thought they were junk, and it was the thing ran like a bag of bolts, and all needed to do was be cleaned, and need to be need to be cleaned, snugged up. To stop an elite internal leakage, and then adjust it properly, and you would, and they would swear that it was a different carburetor or a different engine. So that is what I wanted to touch on today. So remember the key talking points for you to explain to someone in the next week. And on there is how does a carburetor work? A carburetor needs to atomize the fuel, which is take liquid fuel, break it into small particles, emulsify it, mix it with air. And then once it's atomized and emulsified, because when it's atomized, it has more surface area, right? Because there's little droplets, so there's more surface area for all the fuel molecules and then it needs to phase change which is vaporized and the phase change works upon the latent heat of vaporization and needs heat for to phase change from a, a, a very small particle liquid atomized into a gaseous or rarefied form which is what the engine needs to burn And the air bleeds are responsible for the emulsification process and also for shaping the fuel curve. And oftentimes they just get dirty or gummed up and just need to be cleaned. You're not re-engineering the carburetor, you're cleaning the carburetor. But I cannot emphasize enough that the carburetor, a clean, tight carburetor with the properly adjusted mixture screws is probably... like i said 90 95 of the problems and i don't care whether it's a small engine or a big engine all right the thing is that it all comes into play so it's you know to do those things you'll find it's very easy invest a couple of bucks in a can of spray carburetor cleaner keep the carburetors clean keep them keep them tight and you'll be surprised how well they will run so now we're going to get ready. And as always, if you have any questions or any concerns, please feel free to contact me at the Hot Rod Farmer, the farm machinery digest dot com. I mean, Hot Rod, excuse me hot rod farmer yeah hot rod farmer farm machinery digest.com i don't even know my own email address anymore all but now we're going to get ready to go into our toolbox test and our toolbox test is brought to us proudly by agro liquid they are perfectly calibrated crop nutrition superior quality superior delivery and superior results and i can attest to that because we are an agro liquid farm and the difference that I have seen in my in my marketable yield, and the drought tolerance and the disease tolerance by switching to a complete agroliquid program, has really been you know day and night difference. So, so I ask you to please check out agroliquid. Go to their website agroliquid.com. Talk to the representatives, and if you check them out. I know that you will become an AgroLiquid customer, and the thing is that if you check them out and look into it, you will see what I saw. And you don't need to be an agronomist; you'll need to, you'll just know what is good and neat, And you need to become an AgroLiquid farm. But they are bringing us our toolbox test question today. But before before we do that, we're going to have to hear from my good friend, Mister Rubinowitz. And Tex Rubinowitz, uh, my good friend, I I, I got tongue-tied here, good friend Tex Rubinowitz and the Hot Rod Man song. So here it comes. Enjoy it. Well, I'm a rolling daddy with a mean machine. It's got to be an motor and it sure is clean. I'm a hot rod man. Yeah, I'm a hot rod man. look out, little mama, gonna get you. Okay. hey tex thank you so much for bringing for singing that for us you know here it is with this new soundboard i'm controlling things that i'm not used to controlling. and i kind of uh, get myself in a uh you know tizzy here but uh you know that is as i said tex rabinowitz hot rod man found on ripsaw records the cutting edge of rock and roll who soon will have a great new website and i'll invite you to come there at that particular point don't go there now because it's not up and then you could check out all of the great uh, rockabilly and other songs that they have on that from the old days all right toolbox test all right you are thinking about investing in another self-propelled sprayer for the farm you do not want to buy a new one since this unit will only be used for foliar feeding and fungicide application You had a bad experience a few years back when you seriously dinged up and killed some crop due to herbicide residue. You vowed to yourself to eventually get a dedicated sprayer for in-season crop care and nutrition. You found a nice unit a few towns away. The seller said that it worked well until recently when the pressure would not stay steady he felt it needed a new pump and priced the sprayer accordingly you agreed with his diagnosis and took the unit home upon removal and disassembly of the centrifugal style pump you noticed the housing was pitted internally and the tip of some of the impeller fins broken off confident that you found the issue you bolt on a new pump and hit the field only to find that the same pressure problem exists perplexed and frustrated you ask around for some advice and this is what you receive farmer a says the new pump is defective and has the same problem as the one you replaced farmer b believes that the gauge is wrong and the old pump was fine farmer c says that the old pump ate some dirt from the tank and it must still be in the system that is why the impeller is damaged and the volute pitted internally Farmer D is adamant that the original pump was damaged by cavitation, and that is why the pressure is jumping around. so just remember we need to we need to don 't remember what it 's a, B, C, or D who is right what is wrong with that pump, and why is the why are those problems still there ready so we will get to that in a couple of minutes, but first is going to be our special delivery segment. Brought to you by Firestone Ag, a company founded by Harvey Firestone, a fourth-generation farmer from Columbiana, Ohio. Harvey dreamed of putting rubber tires on farm tractors, and his innovative mindset is the core of Firestone Ag today and lives on with their 23-degree tread bar design, AD2 technology, and now the Firestone of replacement tracks. The soil is the lifeblood of your farm. Trust it only to Firestone. And I believe I believe that whole hardly the soil is the lifeblood of your farm all right so now we're going to get to mr cowenberg's letter and hopefully i didn't kill his name like i did last week so we're going to read his letter and we're going to go from there let me just get this letter out over here okay and we're going to uh, i listened to your podcast while running a sprayer and combine and find it very infor- and find it very informative uh and useful my question to you is is that i have a 1997 ford f250 with the 7.3 liter turbo diesel engine i found over the last couple of months i began to have issues starting my truck after it's been sitting for a while anything longer than four or five hours because i live in ontario canada i figured it was because of the slightly colder weather now and that some of my glow plugs had failed they were about six years old i replaced all of the glow plugs and the valve cover gasket all of the wiring and harnesses looked to be in good condition everything worked perfectly for a couple everything worked perfectly for a couple of weeks and now i'm having a crank no start problem the truck cranks over quickly and doesn't even try to fire up a little bit of gray smoke comes out of the exhaust but not much If I give it a little shot of ether, it will fire right up and run perfectly smooth, at least for an old 7.3. The truck has 430,000 kilometers on it, and I can't figure out if it's fuel-related issue or possibly a cam sensor issue. The truck has only shut off once when I was driving, and that was four or five years ago, so I don't think it is the sensor. I'm thinking it is fuel-related issue. Also, Also, after I started with the shot of ether, I can shut it off almost immediately, and it will then start up with no problems. Thanks for thanks for your advice, and keep up the great work with the podcast. Thank you, Simon. Well, I was able able to communicate with him, and we went back and forth an email and i did make some suggestions to him and i felt that and uh, and i think that he kind of fixed it on his own before i got my suggestions to him sadly but what ended up happening was the truck had a had a, had a failed glow plug relay he had told me that the, and that was one of the things I said to him to make sure that you are checking that the power supply to the glow plug is strong enough to light off all the glow plugs. And the glow plug really was melted internally. And so it was starving the glow plugs from the proper amperage for them to heat up enough for the truck to start. So, you know, the, the take home message here is, you know, Always, and I'm glad, thankfully, he said it starts fine now, so I'm glad that that is working well and got kind of called up in Canada the past couple of weeks, so I know that that uh, that's a good test. But the the take-home message here is to, with anything electrical, especially a high amperage demand like the glow plugs, you need to confirm that it's getting full power and has a good ground. And in this particular instance, what we need to do is throw away the fact that the glow plugs... The glow plugs, uh, when he changed the glow plugs, that it worked for a week or two and started finding. When you're chasing electrical issues, lots of times you can't apply that to it. Now, what may have happened is that the glow plug relay could have been on the way out, he had some weak glow plugs that weren't pulling the full amperage demand. And then with the new glow plugs, all eight glow plugs that were working properly, it overloaded the relay because the contacts were starting to burn already. And that did it in, or that could be have nothing to do with it whatsoever. So what I want you to realize is that oftentimes when you're working on electronics like this or electrical circuits, what you'll need to do is you will have to go in there and confirm voltage, amperage, and ground depending upon the circuit. You know, because if you said to yourself, well, why did it work for three weeks or two weeks or one day and stop working and it'll put you down the wrong diagnostic path. So I'm very glad that he got it working and always you know go to the low hanging fruit first uh i'm sure if he would have checked the resistance of some of those glow plugs that the original problem was that the glow plugs were starting to burn out and they were not getting hot enough quick enough and that is why the truck was hard starting and then i think that the relay was also starting to go bad on him and then what had happened is the contacts were starting to burn inside and not carrying the full amperage load and then what happens is that the uh he put the new glow plugs in it only had two or three of whatever a number of starts in it probably more than two or three and then the relay gave up the ghost and he was back to where he was but he was back to where he was for a different reason all right for a different reason so so when you're chasing electrical stuff you know keep that in the back of your mind why they change this and it's working fine and it stopped working fine You know, keep that in the back of your mind. It's a good indicator. It's a good indicator of what's going on, but it cannot be the only indicator you have to apply actual values to what's going on. And it's just, you know, without applying values to electrical circuits is akin to like trying to diagnose crops without doing a tissue test or a sap test or a soil sample or what have you. And as I always say, once you see it like that, it's really bad. And there's a number of different, as you all know, the number of different crop nutrition deficiencies that present almost alike the same thing happens with electricity so we need to actually apply things to it i'm glad that he did apply to it and find that the glow plug relay was failed and was burned internally obviously he took it apart which is great that's what i like to do find the smoking gun don't just plug a new relay in and say it starts great now and go on i always am a big big proponent of forensic investigation with failed parts so listen i want to thank you so much for listening to the show today i hope that you enjoyed it as i always say is if you have any questions or any issues or concerns if i could help you in any way please feel free to contact me at hot rod farmer at farm and I want to tell you that the Hot Rod Farmer is pulling for you, the American farmer and rancher, and my beloved, beloved America. You have a blessed week. Take care. Hopefully you listen next week. Thank you.